Buddhist uh, religion, we have these three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Uh, the Buddha refers to that person as the historical person who uh, became enlightened through his own efforts 2,500 years ago out in the jungles of India. Um, that process or that experience of enlightenment is a purification of the mind that comes through the practice of uh, meditation, making the mind peaceful, concentrated, and then contemplating to see and understand truth. It's the truth about the way things are, the way things are in nature. <coughs> that truth is what we call the Dhamma. And that process of enlightenment bringing the mind to the point where it penetrates and sees the truth of the way things are is bringing the mind to the Dhamma so what the Buddha realizes is the Dhamma or truth and what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that experience of the, the Buddha's mind experiencing seeing the truth realizing truth so on paper, you might say on paper, we split up these refuges. We have the Buddha, then we have the Dhamma, which is the truth. Um, when you talk about the Dhamma, you could say really whether a Buddha arises in the world, there is a Buddha or not. That truth is obviously truth, so it's there. And what the Buddha does is, through his own practice, investigation, contemplation, we say realizes the truth and then through that realization is able to pass it on, teach, um, guide others to realize in the same fashion, the same way that he, he did, the Buddha did. Um, through that process of teaching and disseminating um, truth or the Dhamma, other men and women, monks, nuns, men and women practice according to the teachings they start to realize the truth as well get to the point where they also have that same enlightenment experience and these are the Sangha um, the thing that binds these three refuges together is the Dhamma, the truth it's the mind of the Buddha that, that realizes the truth, sees the truth the truth itself and then the enlightened disciples of a Buddha who have also realized the truth so there's this, this common binding uh, essence of truth, whether it's Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So in one sense you could say they're all the same, they're all one thing, which is this, this experience of the enlightened mind understanding, penetrating truth. Uh, and that is the same, that quality pervades the three refuges. But then for the practical terms, um, for our own contemplation, our own reflection, it's helpful to put them like this, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Um, and you also mentioned we also have also the Sangha, you can also contemplate or see it on the conventional level, the normal level. We have monks and nuns, people who shave their heads, take ordination, uh, even if they haven't yet had this enlightened, enlightenment experience and realized truth they're still Sangha because they're, they're, they've taken on the precepts and the, the, the role of, of monks and nuns. So we also have that, that way of looking at Sangha as well.
<laughs> yeah, sure. Um, in the United States, there have always been people, usually a minority, I think, who are concerned uh, that the United States pursues an excessive and destructive materialism. And these, these, the people who have this concern have uh, received a lot of, uh, have been energized by the current economic crisis. Um, does Buddhism have a role uh, in, in participating in this debate? And does, does it particularly have a role in a country like Thailand, which is overwhelmingly Buddhist? Yes, the um, Buddhist religion, Buddhist teachings very much address the sort of things you just mentioned, these issues. Um, the problem of uh, materialism and maybe an overemphasis over um, concern with material development and then some of the problems, the suffering that arise from that. Buddhism very much addresses that and talks about that. Um, in the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha pointed out that um, material happiness, the material comforts, the various kind of happinesses that come from uh, material gain and what we might call economic progress and material development, and they're, they're, they're a true form of happiness, but they're temporary. The kind of happiness we can have um, through having money, material wealth, property, and the different experiences associated with that, um, they're temporary. And for that reason, there's some suffering hidden within that kind of happiness. Um, you gain your happiness, but because it's temporary, it'll lose it again, whether it's wealth or the experiences we can have based on the wealth we, we can achieve in this life. Because it's temporary, then you, you, you lose it again. It tends to lead to a cycle of the mind always wanting more, wanting to get back, wanting to hold on to, cling on to, and that brings with it some suffering. And if never people never reflect on that, well, they tend to get caught into this sort of habitual cycle. So Buddhism is helping us to look more deeply at that process and to see the suffering that comes with um, material at attachment to material happiness and to see that we, we should maybe as human beings look deeper than that, look for something more substantial, more satisfying, deeply satisfying. Um, and so the, the essential teachings in Buddhism, which are reflected in some, somewhat in Thai culture and Thai society, um, is trying to achieve this sense of what we call podi in Thai. And podi means the sense of uh, contentment, with what one has, a sense of internal satisfaction with what one has. Um, as a theme, as a, as a reflection, how to find that level in your life so that you can find happiness with what you have. So you help start to free yourself from this cycle of, or you might say this attachment to constantly seeking more material wealth and kind of being on, on trapped into that. And the way the Buddhist teachings and begin to help us to find this sense of internal happiness, internal contentment. First of all, there's a very strong emphasis on just generosity and kindness in daily life. And because when you're consciously practicing generosity and kindness, you're not only thinking of 
what you can get for yourself and how much more you can gain from life you're also thinking about other people around you, family and society and that has a, an effect on the mind, brings one actually a lot of joy and helps to counter this the suffering that comes from always trying to cling on to and hold on to material wealth and gain. The second emphasis in the teachings which again um, you can see throughout say Buddhist culture in Thailand is the encouragement to live in a moral way um, what we call sila. sila sila literally means morality or virtue trying to lead, uh, reflect on our conduct how we act how we relate to other people how we speak how we act um, learning to train ourselves to live in the world in a virtuous way a moral way where we're not harming ourselves harming other people <coughs> and this is seen as a the result of this trying to train oneself develop oneself in in a way that is virtuous and moral leads to an even deeper happiness happiness than just the happiness that comes from the practice of generosity and kindness one actually the very deep internal satisfaction that comes from that because one's not harming anybody or harming oneself um, and then on the deepest level encouraging people to actually develop their minds in a very um, direct way to develop the qualities of meditation, the ability to learn to develop self-awareness and the peace, the calm that comes through that and then using the peace and calm of that to investigate truth, coming back again to the Dhamma, the truth, the way things are, to understand that better and with that understanding that brings us a sense of inner peace as well. Um, with that inner peace we can understand the true nature of the world that say for instance the material wealth that we are seeking that we tend to rely on and depend on so much um, is ultimately what we call anicca dukkha anatta it's impermanent it's uh, unstable and you know it can't give us lasting happiness and ultimately it's not ours to own and to keep and hold on to and these are three reflections that um, Buddhism emphasizes us to develop in our daily lives, to reflect on the material world and our lives, to see the, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness and the, the lack of real self in these things. This is what leads to wisdom and a sense of release from, from this, these attachments and the, the suffering that comes with them. We could talk about in the world that there's um, spiritualism where we take our mind our heart as important or as the most important thing and then there's materialism where we take um, material things and that kind of happiness as the most important thing and these two aspects of life are obviously different there's a different emphasis what we can see when we contemplate uh, the truth about life is that materialism and material happiness is basically flawed or essentially flawed because it's subject to impermanence it's unsatisfactory, it's not self, it's not something we can control and keep and own <clears throat> and this is something we have to contemplate to see particularly the physical aspect of our lives, of this world, our bodies, the material world 
and all that's connected with it is very much subject to change. It all comes to an end sooner or later. For those who don't contemplate, well that change and that ending, the separation and the ending that comes uh, as physical things change, live out their life and so on, uh, leads to suffering for those who attach and don't contemplate to see the, the deeper truth of this impermanence of, of the material world. Ajahn Chah, our teacher, for, for instance, uh, would always remind us that when we gain material things, um, they tend to stay with us only for a period of time. Any aspect of uh, materiality, uh, whether it's this physical body or the possessions, the things we can have in this world, eventually they break apart, they degenerate, they get old uh, and they break up disintegrate. Because of that, as human beings, we tend to suffer. So in that case, if we're always just seeking material things and material happiness, are we wise? If it just leads to suffering, then we're not really wise, are we? So we have to contemplate this, contemplate to see the danger, the inherent danger in materialism without wise reflection, it will just lead, lead on to suffering. For example, Ajahn Chah would often talk about, um, say, just a simple thing like a cup. We buy a cup or we're given a cup, a very nice cup, and we can use it and drink out of it. A wise person, they'll take this cup and use it, but at the same time they'll contemplate to see that it is also subject to impermanence, it's unsatisfactory and ultimately it's not one's, it's not self, it's not something one can own and keep forever. A wise person will contemplate like this and they'll know that one day this cup must break, it must crack, break, disintegrate and separate from us. Once we know this truth, it sets the mind free from its attachments. Therefore there is no suffering associated with owning that cup and using that cup. This is true happiness, the inner happiness, the spiritual happiness that uh, Buddhism is encouraging us to find and experience. Another person might gain the cup but they don't contemplate. They never think about the fact that it is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. So when it breaks, they do suffer. They suffer over that separation, that loss. If we never contemplate tr truth in this way, then we'll never understand that our life is actually subject to impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self. Um, we'll never really come to face or accept the truth that we're gradually getting older every day, we will have to face illness, sickness, and one day we'll have to die. If we never contemplate in this way, well of course we'll, we'll have to experience some suffering and uh, unhappiness over that fact. Any more questions? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the, the idea of, of not harming people, of um, 
seems to me to be uh, very important here because when I when I refer to materialism as excessive, I also refer to it as destructive. Uh, it's destructive of the natural world. Uh, it, it also divides people into sort of groups who attempt to destroy each other. Um, Buddhism. It seems to me that a lot of your answer has sort of follows themes of um, you know we must contemplate, we must uh, realize, uh, we must think deeply, reflect, um, and yet it seems that um, uh, and, and and you know particularly sort of a wise person must realize these things, uh, but. You know, my own personal experience is it's it, growing up in, a, in a, a culture like Western culture, and I think this is true of some other cultures too, uh, particularly to the extent that they emulate the West, but also in their own right. Um, uh, most people don't realize these things, will not really realize these things, will not contemplate, will not reflect, uh, will not achieve the kind of wisdom that would allow for its realization. Um, is, is Buddhism content to go on in the way that it has gone on for so many years? Uh, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, achieving detachment from the situation? Can uh, you elaborate a little bit on that? This, this problem that you pointed to is nothing new. It's something the Buddha pointed out 2,500 years ago. Is that, um, Someone like the Buddha can teach and spread words of wisdom and teach people, but the number of people who will actually stop, listen and practice is always going to be, well not always, but tends to be limited. And that hasn't changed for 2,500 years. Um, he compared it to the number of you might compare the ratio of the number of people who will actually take these teachings and put them into practice in their lives and the numbers of people who won't who will tend to ignore them and just carry on doing the things they do and maybe doing harmful things and causing themselves and others suffering he compared it to like the horns on a cow so two and the hairs on the skin of a cow which is many <laughs> Uh, so it would seem probably that ratio is, hasn't really changed for 2,500 years. He, he made that simile that long ago and it's probably still appropriate today. But that doesn't mean to say one just gives up. One still practices whatever one can. One's teachers say, he said, for us as monks, we still practice and spread the teachings in whatever way we can. But as you do that, you have wisdom. You understand that people are at different levels or different points in their spiritual development and the majority of people perhaps are not yet ready to fully understand the Dharma, the truth or practice it but there are some who are ready to stop and practice and consider it and so that makes it worthwhile and as far as the majority who may still be doing all kinds of harmful things, unwise things, one just has to as you say, one has to practice detachment as a conscious, conscious thing. One, one says, if 
there's a time when they can understand that's good, that would be good, but if at the moment they don't, well, I'll have to just be patient with this situation and carry on. If we're just to take the example of Thailand, which is a Buddhist country where the majority of people uh, have faith in the Buddhist religion, um, we can also note that the level of practice uh, of each individual in the, this country is obviously different. There's a very large number of people who practice uh, dana. Dana means generosity and the giving of charity, giving of alms, supporting monastic, uh, monastic institutions and other forms of charity is practiced widely and it's something one can say is very much at the heart of Thai culture, uh, Thai society. So on that level you could say Buddhism is doing very well. But then if you are to look on the level of morality and virtue, um, which is usually judged by what we call the, the level of practice of the precepts, there's the five basic precepts and then the eight precepts that uh, lay Buddhists might practice. Um, the numbers who keep the five precepts or eight precepts regularly or daily drops right down compared with the numbers who practice generosity and different forms of charity. Um, it might, you might find individuals who keep the five precepts or eight precepts say once a week, they might do that as a practice, a conscious practice to make a day of practicing uh, according to the five precepts or the eight precepts. But to find just one person who's keeping them every day, trying to consciously keep to those precepts every day, the number's going to be much, much smaller. Um, you know, just simple things like, to, say, to f the number of, say, men who don't drink alcohol, consciously don't drink alcohol, practicing according to the Buddhist teachings, avoid taking alcohol, is already you know, probably a minority in society, and so on. So you can see on different levels the numbers of people practicing and the commitment and the uh, level of practice will vary. Um, if you talk, talk about the practice of meditation, well the numbers probably reduced down again. The people, number of people who are regularly practicing meditation uh, in a disciplined way, much smaller again. They're still there, they're spread out throughout the society. And it's a big country, there's 60 or 70 million people here, so the numbers who are practicing are still there, but as a proportion, very small. Um, and this is the way it is in a Buddhist country, so obviously non-Buddhist countries or countries which have a number of religions and different teachings is going to be, again, smaller proportions of people who are willing to um, practice and follow the teachings. And one of the main things is many people in the world just don't hear good teachings of any religious tradition. They, they often they haven't yet experienced the teachings firsthand, so naturally they won't be practicing according to them. Um, majority of human beings in the world, if they're not exposed to a good teacher and good system of teachings, any religious teachings, well, they'll tend to be more concerned with, you might say, more selfish interests, just making as much wealth as they can, as quickly as they can, enjoying it in this life with no thought much about the consequences of their actions, whether there is such a thing as an afterlife, 
and even the method by which they attain wealth, well, often people are not too concerned, they'll do it any way they can, sometimes in a moral way, uh, correct way, often in a way that harms other people or takes up advantage of others, um, until they meet with good teachings, good teachers and take those on board, well that's, that's the way the world is and human beings are. Um, the Buddhist monastic tradition, which has been around for 2,500 years, is a very good example to the world of how to live in a harmonious, virtuous way. Just a simple example is, say, in a Buddhist monastery, when every day people do practice gener gener generosity and charity, they bring different kinds of offerings to the monastery, to support the monks and the, the resident community, those offerings are all put together in a central store and then the duty officers of the monks appointed uh, using their kindness and wisdom when there is a need in the community, a particular monk has a need, he can ask for different things from the store and the monastic um, store and that, that will be provided. But that leads to harmony and it also leads to a, an un, unselfish way of living which is a, a very good example to the world um, it's just one example but this is the sort of thing that is important if people if there are groups of people interested in practicing in this way whether as monastics or in family situation what they can do is influence the society around them by practicing living in, trying to live in a virtuous way, an unselfish way, where they're caring more deeply about the important things of life, where they're not exploiting each other or the, the, the world, the resources of the world, where they're trying to live in a, a wise, kind, generous way. This is what the world needs and especially if it's an influential country, say a country like the USA or anywhere, the more people who are concerned in this way, trying to develop a lifestyle that is virtuous, based on virtuous ideals, living in harmony with nature, with other people, well that could be a very great thing for the world, very good influence on the world. So uh, this uh, Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings would certainly encourage that uh, anywhere, if people are willing to practice in that way. Our own teacher, Venerable Ajahn Chah, when he started his monastery in Ubon, in those days um, there were very few monks and the support was limited, material support for the monks, so they learned how to live in a very simple way, easy way. They had to share what they had, whether it was the food that was offered or the other requisites and things that they depended on, they just had to share out meat use of, uh, good use of what was offered. So they learned to live in a very frugal way, being easily contented with what they had. And that's very much the flavour of his teachings uh, that has pervaded right down to the, the current Sangha in this present day. We still learn how to practice contentment, live within our means, uh, whatever support comes. Uh, we, we learn to be satisfied with that. And this is very important for the spiritual life as a, as a monk. Um, but also over time Ajahn Chah teaching monks gradually, the, the numbers of monks and nuns in his monastery increased. Um, he also saw that there's one important founding or 
essential principle in Buddhism is that the monks and nuns, the Sangha, aren't completely cut off or independent from the lay community, the surrounding lay community. They're interdependent. Every day, uh, the lay people, out of their kindness and faith, support the Sangha with food and other material things that help to build the monasteries. And the monks and Sangha, in return, uh, can offer teachings, guidance and training to the lay community. And so over time, uh, it was that uh, lay people started to come into the monastery at Wat Bapong, where Ajahn Chah lived, and practice, particularly on the holy days, every seven or eight days, according to the cycle of the moon. There'd be um, a day of retreat in the monastery, people would come in, practice meditation, listen to teachings. So over time, it's natural that the facilities of the monastery had to expand to cope with that and to, to provide that opportunity for the laity to come in and practice. Um, we can see in the history of Buddhism, there have, have been times when monks do get too cut off from the lay community as a, the wider lay community. For instance, for instance say in the, just after the Buddha's death, there was the famous university at Nalanda in India, where there were thousands of monks living there and studying Dhamma and practicing. But they were living in a fairly isolated, introverted way, where they weren't giving much back to the lay society, the lay community supporting them. And it meant that the lay community, not receiving much teachings, much training, their faith wavered and wasn't so strong. So later on, when they were um, dangers and threats to the Buddhist religion, other groups of people, migrants and uh, warriors coming into northern India. Um, Buddhism actually disappeared quite quickly and perhaps this was a, re a reflection of um, a weakness in, in the, at that time, a lack of the training of the lay community and a lack of teaching and spreading the Dhamma. So Lumpo Cha saw that this is a very important fundamental principle in Buddhism is that uh, the monks and nuns, the Sangha, they need their seclusion and their space for practicing meditation and their quietness but they also have to give back because they have to um, help and respond to that support that they receive from the lay community. Uh, so for instance in Wapapong in the early days there was uh, very simple facilities, there's no pipe water, no electricity, uh, all the water had to come from wells, deep wells that were dug and then they just had a bucket on the end of a rope which was used to haul water up so every day the monks had to come together and do water hauling which is quite uh, strenuous work and they had to take that water around in uh, jerry cans slung on bits of bamboo between two monks they'd go around to different water jars at places where monks bathed or the kitchens or the toilets and they live very simply but quite strenuously having to look after the monastery in that way um, later on they got pumps for the water um, but mechanical pumps have a lot of problems difficult to maintain over a long period of time so actually they found later on it was better to get an electric pump for the water so later on they had electricity come into the monastery. Uh, sometimes people look at this in an idealistic way and say oh we shouldn't have uh, electricity, pipe water and so on, we should keep things simple. 
One should also look at the reasons why there is this material development and the, the, the intention behind it. Even in a monastery it is sometimes helpful for the teaching and spreading of Dhamma and for the practice of the, both the monastic community and the lay community if uh, the facilities are there to receive people, to help with that job. So the, the development of monasteries isn't necessarily as an end in itself just uh, uh, material development for the sake of it, it's usually for the purpose of supporting the practice and the teaching of Dhamma. This monastery, what Mark Jan, we can look at in the same, similar fashion. In the very early days, things here were very simple. There's no electricity, no pipe water. And they actually had the reputation in the branch monasteries of Ajahn Chah as being a place uh, where you might come to die. Because there was very bad malaria here, where we're sitting right now. The mosquitoes, if they bit you in those days, then very high percentage of chance that you would get malaria and many of the monks including Tanajananan got malaria many times so the monastery had a reputation as a place being, that was difficult to live uh, even life-threatening but over time uh, it's necessary to improve the facilities because more monks came more lay people have come to practice here they used to have no electricity, then they have to pump water, being on a mountain, pump water up to header tanks, to pump water with mechanical diesel pumps, a lot of problems, mechanical maintenance problems. In the end they found that it would be better to have an electric pump, and so on. And this is how a monastery develops on the material side, but the intention behind it is always for supporting the practice of Dhamma, not just for material development in its in its own sake, for its own sake. And this is something we have to contemplate uh, whether it's in our own individual practice as monks, we, we have to contemplate our use of what we say the four requisites, that is food, uh, robes or clothing, lodgings and then medicine. We have to find the right level for our, our own needs, we can't take too much, that will become extravagant, indulgent but then too little also creates problems. We, we suffer in different ways and practice is not convenient. Just take food for instance, if you have too much you become overweight, unhealthy in one way, but if you have too little you don't have enough energy to practice and you suffer in another way. So we have to learn uh, with food or any other aspect of material existence, our material life, we have to learn to find the right amount or that, that level that is, is just right for us. And similarly on um, the level of say community or society we have to find the right level where we have enough material development to support the things that we do to support our practice to support the teaching the training of the lay community as well if you have too much well yes it can become indulgent but if you don't have enough then things are just too difficult and you can't um, achieve very much and and maybe buddhism won't become very strongly established maybe the society uh, if one isn't doing very much for the lay community, giving much back in terms of teachings, well maybe Buddhism will disappear gradually like it did in India. So one has to bear in mind these different aspects. Say, here we, large community of monks, we sometimes monks get ill, so we make use of doctors and nurses in the hospitals and clinics around here. Sometimes they come, they get to know us and they come and they say, can you teach us meditation? Um, 
and it seems appropriate to respond to that, to give them the chance. So we sometimes run retreats where groups of doctors, nurses or teachers who we know come and stay here and practice meditation and they learn how to practice in a monastic situation. And that seems very valuable if done in the right way, the right amount. That leads to a stable, strong society where the support for the Sangha is strong and it should mean that Buddhism can last a long time. So it's important for us to see uh, and develop a wise attitude towards material development even in the monastery, whether it's on our, a personal basis or as a, a monastic institution as a whole and society as a whole. We have to think about what is the right amount and see the value and the right way to use these things, develop these things. Does, does that make good sense or you understand? <coughs> Any other questions? There was a question about how should we um, approach the issue of rebirth, future lives, uh, different lives, uh, being born, dying, being born again. Especially in the case, say, if we're a Buddhist and we believe in that, believe in karma and the fruits of karma and, and the fact that when beings die that they go on to another birth according to their karma. And when we meet with people who don't believe in that, uh, how should we approach that? Is there anything we can say or talk about? Um, Tanajan just said this is an old problem that was there, right? has been there since the time of the Buddha. Um, there's often people in the world who have the view there's nothing after death. When you die, that's the end. And it doesn't matter what you do this life, just do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. Nothing happens that when you die, you won't have to face any kind of consequences or anything. Um, and then there's other people who are skeptical. They say, maybe, maybe not and so on. There's many different kinds of views people have and that will often inform the way they live and the way they, their attitude to life and their values. And it's very difficult to prove, it's almost impossible to prove to someone uh, convincingly and successfully who's skeptical about say future lives, past lives, future lives. It's not something you can bring out and show them in that way. Um, but when they asked Ajahn Chah this question, he used to remind us that you don't really need to prove this. You don't have to prove about future lives, past lives and so on. The place to learn and to understand this issue is in the present life. Um, so you can look at it and say if people live in a virtuous way and try to cultivate goodness in their lives and learn to live in a way that uh, is skillful and in the way they conduct themselves and conduct their lives in the present what will the result be? Well the result will be that they'll have happiness and they'll help to create a happy society around them. If there is such a thing as karma and the fruits of karma and the future lives, we don't just disappear when we die, but we, uh, we experience the fruits of our karma in future lives, 
then the goodness, the skillfulness of all of that that they've done in this life will not be wasted or lost, it will go on and bring them fruits in future lives as well, bring them to happiness in future existences. If it's if there aren't such things as future lives, if when we die that's the end of it, well there's no loss because you've experienced happiness in this life from your good actions and skillful living. If you are to live in an unskillful way, an antisocial way, aggressive way, exploiting others, harming others and so on, believing it doesn't matter, nothing happens when I die. But you also have to look at the results in the present life, in the present moment of that, and what will they be? Well, you'll create a lot of suffering and confusion in the world for yourself or other people around you. And if there is such a thing as future lives and the fruits of our karma, well, it's not going to be good, is it? You're going to suffer not just in this life, but in next life. But if you reduce it down, you can see, oh, really an important place to focus on is this life, what I'm doing right now in my life, the way I conduct myself, the way I, my attitudes, my views, the way I think, everything. It's bringing its results right now and we can prove that for ourselves, there's no doubt, because we can see what's happening, we can know what's happening. And so this is the place to practice, this is the emphasis. The important thing is to understand your own heart, your own mind and see really that the roots of, you might say, heaven and hell are there. It's not something that you um, have to focus on or look, project into the future. At some future date I will go to heaven or go to hell or even Nibbana, enlightenment, some kind of future state. One has to look at what's arising in one's mind, one's heart, right here, right now, and see that the causes for happiness and suffering or heaven and hell are right here in our minds right now and they're not something external far away this is an important point to understand so that one understands the place of practice and where one has to practice is right now one's not practicing just for some future happiness one has to practice right now and find liberation and happiness right now in the present it's natural that when we begin practice even uh, say if we come into a monastic environment as a monk that we will have some uncertainty and doubts about certain aspects of the teachings such as karma, the fruits of karma, uh, past lives and future lives and so on. Because these things are difficult to prove in, in the normal sense but then that doesn't matter, we can keep an open mind and just carry on practicing, we don't have to fully believe or fully reject, we keep an open mind and just carry on practicing learning to internalize the teachings and develop our own understanding through our own practice. Because ultimately that is the place where you can understand these truths, is in your own mind. Uh, the Buddha always said, heaven arises in your mind, hell arises in your mind, Nibbana or enlightenment arises in your mind. These are things to know what knows, the mind knows, the mind knows it. we can develop that ability to know our own state of mind whether we have happiness, whether we have suffering, whether we have attachment, whether we have liberation these are experiences to be known and what knows is the mind and the mind doesn't die, that quality of knowing doesn't disappear, degenerate, it's there and it can be developed and maintained 
the physical body does die we do definitely die there's no doubt about that there's no one in the world who's born and doesn't die everybody goes through the same process of old age getting sick and then dying but the mind that knows that doesn't die and that knowing doesn't die that's what you're training in when you're training and developing the mind is this knowing and understanding of truth and it's something that ultimately you have to know for yourself uh, one of the qualities of the Dhamma, we were talking earlier about taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. When you take refuge in the Dhamma, one of the qualities of that Dhamma that you're taking refuge in is the quality we say, Pachatang Veditabo Vinyuhi. The wise understand or know for themselves. I mean, that quality that ultimately we have to develop our own understanding through our own efforts, our own contemplation, investigation of truth and come to our own uh, understanding. It's not something we can just believe in from others, hear from others and accept on that level. We have to also internalize it and, and develop our own personal understanding for it to be a true refuge and, and to achieve the true peace, true uh, understanding that the Buddha was encouraging us to develop. This is a very important point. Um, the only way we can develop that is through our own practice. So we have to follow the path. We have to develop the kindness, the generosity, develop the virtuous behavior, develop the meditative skills, learning how to quieten our minds and contemplate and experience that, the happiness and the peace that comes from that. And that's something we have to know and experience for ourselves. Once you develop your mind, this ability to know your own mind and understand and see truth in this way, then you'll really come to understand about what we call uh, this insight, Panya insight, is the highest, uh, most meritorious thing, the highest good that a human being can develop and experience is, is understanding, the good of understanding and seeing and knowing truth. When you know truth in your own mind, then you understand about, we say, different realms of existence, about heaven realms, hell realms, and even Nibbana. We we'll understand about birth and death and rebirth, because we'll be able to understand from our own mind, through our own experience, seeing the, the truth about the mind and how um, we create happiness and suffering, or the causes for these different realms of existence through our own mind, through our own attachments. When we, we really investigate and develop this ability to know our own mind, we'll, we'll see that and understand that. Somehow or other we got onto the subject of ghosts. Um, <laughs> I guess continuing from the uh, subject of belief in afterlife and karma and fruits of karma. So Tanajan just mentioned that in Thai culture, Thai society, generally people believe fully in afterlife, in ghosts, in other realms of existence. Um, it's pretty much 100% and so everyone's very afraid of these things. Um, they also believe in what we call devatas, which is angels, heavenly beings. Uh, they don't have much doubt about the existence of these things and the realm, these realms of, of where they live either. Um, but also that has some weaknesses to it. If you believe in something 100% unquestioningly, then you can easily get fooled, 
tricked by other people or your own mind. So parents are always tricking their children. They're saying, if you're bad, the ghosts will get you. <laughs> and because the, everyone believes in ghosts, well, it works very well. Uh, but maybe it reinforces uh, an unwise belief sometimes. Um, in the West, probably the upbringing of most, the culture and the upbringing is a bit different. Generally, kids are taught to be self-confident, independent, and not just to believe anything like that. So the background is slightly different. Um, nevertheless, it's important for us to investigate these, investigate our backgrounds and our beliefs and, and, and come to an understanding. And say like, for instance, most Thais do believe in these things, but they've actually never seen, most, most people have never seen a ghost or a David or anything. Um, I, for myself, was brought up in that way. I believed very much in the existence of the afterlife and ghosts and celestial beings. And so that affected me strongly, especially when I was a young monk. Sometimes we would go out and stay in the cremation grounds, places where people were buried or burnt, um, to test our meditation or to practice meditation and to uh, contemplate fear and, and the, the sort of experience that having those beliefs brings up in the mind, the suffering that they can bring. One time I was staying in a cremation ground and they brought in the body of a girl, young girl who drowned. So of course that night I was practicing meditation, I was camping there, so I was walking meditation with a lot of worry, fear, concern. My main concern was, has she been reborn yet or not? If not, then she must be hanging around and that brought up a lot of fear and uh, concern in the mind. I was only a, a young monk at that time, so my meditation I was still working on on how to focus my mind, concentrate the mind. So it was very good for me to contemplate this and see the doubts and the worries and the fears coming up about ghosts and, and the dead. Strangely enough, the next day after she died and had been buried there, someone came into the cremation ground in the afternoon, it was very hot, and they brought me a nice Pepsi to drink. Um, Normally, the wise thing maybe would be just to accept this nice cold Pepsi, drink it, and then get on with my practice. But perhaps unwisely, I started to think, why? Why did they bring this drink? How on earth did they know I was here? Why, why would they come with this drink, uh, knowing that there was this monk practicing in the forest at this time? It's a bit unusual. So I couldn't resist, I asked them, I said, oh, how come you brought me this drink today? Why did you, how did you know I was here? And why did you think of bringing me this drink? They said, well, last night, um, the ghost of the dead girl came into my dream and told me that there's this monk walking meditation and practicing in the forest that I should go and help him, take him a drink. So here I am. So of course, that night I was really afraid <laughs> knowing that there was a ghost around. Um, Probably the ghost was just hanging around laughing at me, uh, seeing this monk walking there with all this fear and worry in his mind, and out of compassion, that is why they, they entered the dream of their relative and said to take a drink to look after this monk. Um, 
And of course, there are many, many stories you can hear, similar stories in Thailand, uh, people seeing ghosts and celestial beings, all kinds of beings. And they can help us on one level, they can help us just to reaffirm the possibility of uh, karma and the fruits of karma and rebirth. Um, but we still need to use our wisdom to contemplate this. Um, and But the, the value of, of such belief perhaps is that it can, if we keep contemplating, keep testing it, keep thinking about these issues, it can turn into real wisdom, real understanding over time. Um, but it's something you do have to hold up, investigate, until you're sure that it's true. Sometimes when I was a young monk, I would ask the, the Western monks who had come to stay with Lung Po Cha, they didn't seem to have so much fear, not, not in the same way as us Thai monks. So I'd ask them, are you afraid? You're living in a place like some of the monasteries, they were built in charnel grounds, places where people were burnt. Um, and most of them would say, no, don't have any fear. And most of the Western monks said they're more afraid of living people uh, their, their experience was they're afraid of you know, people who are crazy or murderers or robbers or that kind of thing. Um, so I could see there culturally there's a bit of difference. Say in Asia people tend to be more at ease with each other uh, but more afraid of ghosts. Whereas in the West people are often not so at ease with each other but they no, have no real problems with ghosts. Um, this is something we have to just contemplate, understand our background and where we, we gain our attitudes and values from and then contemplate to see the merits or weaknesses of them. Even here, what Mark Jan one time many years ago, I remember we were going out on Bindabata in the morning about 6am and at the front of the monastery where the gate is and the wall is, um, just out of nowhere, unexpectedly, this, this person appeared and just walked across the path in front of us and then just seemed to disappear into the, the tree next to the wall. Uh, there was a dog with us at the time, and even the dog saw and went running after this person, looking all around, where were they? And they just seemed to have disappeared into the tree. Um, we could say this is probably the, what we say, the celestial body the astral body of a Devata, an angel being. Uh, they can manifest in this way for people to see with their bare eyes, they can just see them, but then they disappear. The best thing in the beginning of practice then is probably just to have, keep an open mind. Uh, true, not true, we just keep an open mind. If we're not sure yet, that's okay, we can just stay with that, keep our mind in the middle until we've gained more experience and we understand for ourselves. And even the Western monks I've seen over the years living in Thailand practicing and they do gain experience, sometimes they do change from being completely skeptical or anti any um, talk about past lives, future lives, different realms of existence. They can change and they come to their own understanding, actually start to uh, believe in these things. That can also bring suffering. Maybe they start to believe in ghosts and then they actually become afraid of them. <laughs> it can be like that. Sometimes it's important uh, to see beliefs can be helpful though in the practice even though you know it is just a belief because if one has no beliefs in, and doesn't believe anything then maybe it's, one won't even bother practicing or just say it's all a waste of time. So the best thing is try and develop a wise attitude even towards belief itself. Um, 
Then Tanajan went on to ask uh, any of the monks and laity whether they had any experience of seeing beings. And one lady said she'd seen uh, something when she's staying in a mo another monastery, Wat Tam Kham, up in northeast Thailand. One day she was uh, she brought out some f food before the morning meditation, so very early at maybe 3 or 4 a.m. Left it in the kitchen and went up to meditate and chant. And when she came back, there was a lady there in the kitchen, all dressed in white, who seemed to be preparing food as well. Uh, but there's someone she'd never seen before, wondered where she came from. And then she, this lady walked out of the kitchen and walked up the staircase towards the stupa. And as she walked up the staircase, you could see her feet weren't touching the ground. She was like floating up the staircase and then she disappeared. And she realized, oh, this must be a devata. And Tenajan explained, yes, probably a devata who uh, is connected to that monastery and maybe has the heart, the aspiration to cook and make some dana for the monks, but doesn't have a physical body and to do that, but the mind is there. And so this is a manifestation of that being and just temporarily you can see them there uh, wanting to join in making food to offer to the monks. So that's just another story that was offered. Probably enough for tonight before we run away with ourselves. <laughs>